Welcome to Finely Tuned. In each episode here, we're speaking with people who care about our built environment. This podcast is built by Gridium. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this conversation with Jamie Mandel and Phil Kewen of Rocky Mountain Institute. It's fun to have two guests on the podcast today, double the expertise. Phil has been has over a decade of industry experience in energy auditing, retro commissioning, energy modeling, and HVAC design, while Jamie's experience includes working closely with Fort Collins Utilities to develop and pass a plan to reduce 80% of its emissions by 2030, and he leads RMI's analysis of the value of distributed storage and flexible demand resources in reducing grid costs. My name is Millen, and I'm with Gridium. Buildings use our technology to develop energy project revenues that boost building value and sustainability. Jamie, Phil, and I will be discussing energy project portfolio optimization and the value of green leases for real estate owners and investors. Specific examples we'll cover include their work at REI's portfolio of 134 stores, spanning 3.8 million square feet, wow, and the green lease at Boulder Commons, a 100,000 square foot building in Colorado. Great. Thanks for having us on the show, Mellon. Yeah, hi, Mellon. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Same here. So let's jump in at a little bit of an angle. Phil, you worked on energy efficiency in Chicago's Merchandise Mart, which was the world's largest building when it opened in 1930 uh, and still features heavily in the by boat architecture tours of that lovely city, which I can speak of from experience uh, this past summer. What was that like? Yeah, as you mentioned, the building is enormous, uh, around 4.2 million square feet. I would get lost in there after spending months studying it. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it used to have its own zip code. What I remember most was the Strong Facilities team. It was a real pleasure working with them. Jamie, when we chatted a few weeks ago, you had just returned from India on an energy efficiency assignment. It's stunning to see some of the serious effects of pollution there, such as the closing of airports for lack of visibility quite sad. Of course, it's also encouraging to see that, you know, building owners and others there are are taking steps in the right direction. What did you learn from that trip? Thanks, Mellon. Yeah, I was there for another of our efforts called the Global Cooling Prize, which is um, an international prize competition to identify a 5x more efficient room air conditioning for India and for the developing world. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would agree the visibility, um, the air quality in general was something that was really surprising to me, even though um, I had been there before and I was ready for it. I think it's elevated the opportunity for buildings um, to contribute to clean and healthy air and environment. They talk a lot about their, their about the right to thermal comfort as something that's somewhat of an equity issue. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a focus. India is going to double uh, the amount of cities they have between now and 2030, which is not very far. Wow. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, a huge opportunity and, and I think a huge risk. Um, uh, it's a space to get right. I wanted to ask about this experience because I, I think it's just this exact type of experience that unlocks a, a unique dimension to the work done by RMI. Jamie, can you tell us a little more generally about RMI and then more specifically about the portfolio energy optimization report that we'll be discussing? Uh, I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Um, Rocky Mountain Institute's a 37-year-old nonprofit. Um, at this point, we're about 220 people globally. Um, about half of our work is international and half is, is focused on the U.S. And it's, it's exclusively focused on 
energy and in particular the energy transition. So Phil and I work in our buildings program, which is focused on how to accelerate um, buildings energy transition, which has focused on energy efficiency for a long time has been, I think, one of the most successful areas of the energy transition. And now we're starting to face new opportunities in that space with with things like uh, grid interactive buildings, with the grid becoming much more renewable. I would say about RMI generally, we focus on market-based and business-led solutions. So we do we do work in the policy sphere, but we're really focused on unlocking private capital to do to do things that are in their economic best interest. There are quite a few highlights from that work that I want to discuss, uh, which I have to say are also quite clearly laid out in the report. So small thanks for that. Um, we don't have time to cover all of them, but I do want to explore a few and, and also the REI case study. Why should a building owner, you know, let's say a REIT, evaluate all potential projects with a common single methodology? Yeah, so I think a portfolio approach as opposed to a building approach can have a lot of value to a portfolio owner. Uh, one of the things we find is that um, the financially optimal set of decisions varies quite substantially across a portfolio. And you can, you can achieve better financial outcomes by taking a, fo- a portfolio-focused approach as opposed to a single building approach. New tools are making that much more possible today than it ever has been before. And we wanted to see what was possible, both for financial return, emissions reduction, and, and energy reduction when we took a portfolio approach. And, and we outline an approach that RMI quite likes using tools we've developed in the report. But um, we wanted to recognize that this is something that um, can be done in a variety of ways. I think the important thing is to look, look holistically at the portfolio um, to see where you can find the better answer. Yeah, I would add a, a few things as well. The like to me, the obvious answer is it allows us to approach the portfolio systematically and be able to compare projects in each building apples to apples to improve investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think taking that a step further, it, our, RMI is very focused on scaled solutions, and that's really led us to focus on mass customized and industrialized processes that would allow building retrofits to be faster, easier, and cheaper. Uh, one example of that would be a program uh, that we're working on called Realize that's similar to the Energy Sprung program that was that originated in the Netherlands uh, mm-hmm. that uses factory-built exterior panels and HVAC systems that, in that case, is more focused on the residential sector, but homes can be retrofitted in a matter of days. And we're trying to adapt that to multifamily residential at the moment. Cool. For- REI project, we used a different approach, which would be the portfolio energy optimization tool, which is a mass customized analytics tool. And the intent is to more quickly and in a more standardized way, allow portfolio owners to know the ROI and emissions reductions for a whole host of solutions um, and bundles of solutions um, for each building in their portfolio. Um, And having that in one strategic document allows you to make better decisions of where to put money across that portfolio um, and to optimize the whole in a way that we think would be better than, you know, typically going bottom up building by building. One of the things I noticed in the report is that it is focused on energy uh, and recommends projects based on their economics rather than simply efficiency. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll rephrase that slightly in the fact that 
I think improving the performance of buildings is critical for climate change, and it's something that we push partners to set aggressive goals on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, ultimately, the the tool that we're working on is a market based solution. And so, once we've worked with the partners and investment criteria have been established, we then look for the deepest emissions reductions we can while meeting those investment criteria to ensure you know a high likelihood the building owners are going to be willing to act on that recommendation. Uh, Got it. Commonly, this results in more money being funneled towards certain buildings in the portfolio, but the overall portfolio level performance increases significantly. Even better. Some of the things we think about here uh, is project timelines. Uh, your team in the report points to cash flows and the timing of cash flow flows as being important. Uh, how so? Yeah, I, you know, I'm glad you asked this question. I think it points towards one of the core tenets of the initiative. Uh, which is ensuring that we're speaking the language of the investor. You know, I think we, we've talked about kind of energy versus ROI, but, you know, I think when you are thinking about the building owner, a lot of the things they're considering um, in addition to just the ROI of a specific project are the leasing in the building, the hold period of that property and, and similar attributes that can have a major impact on the results of, you know, what are, what are the financial results are of that project. Uh, so, for instance, do leases allow the capital investments to be passed through to tenants uh, or is there a split incentive involved there? Do the project costs increase the rent of the tenants or are the energy cost savings able to compensate for that capital cost? Are they intending to hold that building for a few years? Can PACE be used uh, or can the valuation of the property be increased to the point where it's okay uh, to have a short hold period. Th- those are the type of things that folding into the analysis and prioritizing investments with those uh, included can have a huge impact on the recommendations. And you know, I think commonly it's believed that these considerations are folded into the results by the building owner once the energy portion of the study is complete. Um, but I, I would challenge that to a certain extent in the fact that typically you would be putting together a recommendation or a strategy that would be incomplete without that information. And especially like in our case, we end up creating bundles of solutions per building. We use uh, energy simulation with uh, energy plus um, on the energy analytics side and, and take into account interactive effects. And without knowing the things like the lease and the hold period, you really don't know what to bundle together. That's very interesting, Phil. Um, the REI stores project was also interesting, and it was great to see the level of detail in the report. Can can uh, can you all summarize that that for us, the REI project? Yeah, we so uh, REI, or Recreational Equipment Inc., which is a, an outdoor equipment retailer cooperative, uh, we worked with them a couple of years ago, and we evaluated the majority of their stores across the United States, I think 134 to be exact. The, the sum of the stores was about 3.8 million square feet. Uh, we evaluated 34 different project types, which included uh, energy efficiency solutions, renewable energy, energy storage, and water efficiency. Mm. Um, and by looking at so we, we would create a unique model for each of those stores and evaluate each of these uh, solutions for each unique situation. And when aggregated back together, um, it suggested that REI could cut their energy use by around 39% um, while meeting their economic goals, which were to have a 10-year simple payback in an NPV positive project. 
at Brilliant. the individual investment level. I think one other interesting note is that the REI stores um, have an average energy uh, star score of above 75. So, so that type of savings is kind of above what would be considered a pretty high performing building already. Indeed. Uh, I think one thing also that because of the fact that like 10 year simple payback and NPV positive, when you're thinking about the commercial building sector is a little bit longer than I think a lot of people would consider. But we did look at that at the individual solution level. And when you pull it all together, the overall portfolio return uh, is much shorter. We're projecting a four year simple payback there. Wow. That's great. Um, I might add a couple of additional details to this case study, because I think it's a really powerful one. You know, why was REI interested in a portfolio scale analysis in the first place? You know, one of the things they were very clear about is they were interested in investing with their own money and for the reason that they believed that this was uh, a high return, lower risk opportunity for that um, than they could put elsewhere. And it was in line with what their members wanted as a, as a member owned co-op. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what they lacked was an ability to look across the portfolio and put um, put capital to work at the scale that would make sense um, for a CFO. And, and I think you know one of the things we're able to do is identify over 600 individual projects across the portfolio. Um, you know, different sort of project store combinations, lay out a rollout plan, and come back to them with with both a a substantial ask and detailed kind of risk return analysis on that on that ask that they could use to um, underwrite a pretty substantial program. That's great. One, one other mm-hmm. thing to note uh, before we move on to the next uh, topic would be I also wanted to mention that our initiative has continued to progress uh, since the REI project. Most recently, we've been working a similar analysis for a portfolio of over 60 million square feet to support a zero carbon plan for the Canadian for Canadian federal buildings in the Ottawa National Capital Region. Well, that sounds really interesting too, Phil. Briefly circling back to the REI project, can you walk us through the stack ranking of the NPV projects? I think there were around 45 and the distribution um, really caught my eye. Yeah, what, we did create a graph where we were comparing the NPV uh or pretty much the investment potential of each store across the portfolio. And we, we made the graph because the results were uh, actually a, a quite a bit broader than we were expecting them to be. All this, you know, there are definitely variations between the stores, but in reality, the vast majority of the stores are a big box retail configuration. Um, but by combining the different climates, the different existing conditions, the different lease structures, the different utility rates. Um, when all those things collided, we ended up with some very unique uh, investment recommendations for each location. Um, and you know, I think the longer we work on the problem, the more apparent has become that um, when all these unique attributes collide, the investment potential is quite variable building by building. And I think the good news is the solutions themselves are not that unique. So for instance, an LED fixture or a high performance rooftop unit are very, you know, standard building to building, um, or they can be like, if you choose something that would, would fit into that solution, you can define that in a very standard way. Um, and by having a mass customized platform, you can then apply that very standard solution to a very kind of diverse set of 
situations that you come across in a portfolio like this. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Allow me to shift gears slightly now before uh, before I let you both go. I should want to talk about your work on the net zero energy buildings and green leases. Um, of course, I'll, I'll link to some of this in the show notes. Uh, Jamie, in our first conversation, you touched on some of the most compelling results from RMI study of green leases spanning occupancy rates to rental rates and building value. What were those? Yeah, I'm glad you raised this topic, Melon. Um, there's been a lot of, I would say, research and, and projects and communication around uh, the benefits of net zero energy buildings in terms of improved productivity, occupant comfort, health, and, and overall increased value in a building. What's been challenging to date is that most net zero buildings are, are owner-occupied and owner-built, um, and they don't turn over very often. So what we were really excited to see is the increasing number of net zero energy leased buildings. So, you know, commercial buildings that are built for future tenants, um, we're able to measure things like um, operating cash flow, sale value premium, um, overall profits as these buildings have different lease turnovers. Um, mm -hmm. And what we found was pretty surprising. We reviewed... Um, uh, I think four four buildings in depth, but tried to get a sense of kind of all the net zero commercial leased buildings that were in existence at the time of writing, and we found we found some pretty impressive results. Right, a nine percent operating cash flow premium, a seventeen percent sale value premium. If you assume a ten year hold period, a nineteen percent increase in profits. Um, wow. and all of that set off a set against what was an average of a seven percent construction cost premium. Um, which is, I would say, both an average and a number that appears to be declining as net zero energy buildings become more common. Right. Um, yeah, so overall, uh, I think a very good investment and one that we're starting to be able to quantify in ways we couldn't before. Yeah, that's really encouraging. I think also, as I understand it, there are even further sort of ancillary benefits about uh, permitting timelines. Is, is that right? There can be. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's exciting about these projects is they line up a lot of different interests. Um, so not only are our tenants excited, but but often cities want to see more net zero energy uh, buildings. They want to see walkable developments. A lot of times those things are correlated. And so um, there can be benefits in terms of incentives, in terms of increased permitting time and, and things like that. You've touched on it already, um, and you might think of it as the difference between a, a new construction or an existing building, and clearly one of the big differences there is the lease. Uh, this report and the work that you've done points out to f points to four crucial components uh, in, in a green lease, and uh, you've, you've been so kind as to share some example lease language as well. What, what would that, uh, those lease components look like? Yeah, so a, a net zero lease, I think, is one of the really powerful tools for tenants uh, as opposed to building owners to engage in um, high performance buildings and, and the energy transition. Um, I'll say that an increasing number of tenants we notice seek out high performing buildings and want to write in energy performance language into their lease. And that's something that is another exciting trend. Um, in this case, where we're looking at a net zero energy commercial building and, and we've got uh, tenants coming in, I'd say there, there's sort of four things that are really critical to make the arrangement work. Um, so one is probably most crucial is setting an energy budget. 
Um, and we're, I will say in kind of one of the main buildings here, we're, we're also the anchor tenant for the building. And so we can, I can speak with experience that, um, the energy budget is not, has not been a significant constraint for us in, in occupying the building. Um, so this is often common sense guidelines around, um, the lighting density, plug load controls and things like that. And, and mm-hmm. simply put when a tenant exceeds their energy budget, um, they would settle up uh, with the owner in the same way that um, if you had your own utility bill, you would pay more if you used more energy. The second is submetering and disclosure. So a really critical component is making energy use very transparent uh, to the tenants. So um, making sure they get reports on energy use and making sure major loads are submetered so that they have the tools to monitor their energy use. Um, and again, this is... Um, maybe not as onerous as it sounds. It's a pretty straightforward um, thing to periodically check energy use, see if there are ghost loads and address them. Mm-hmm. Um, commissioning and recommissioning the building is really critical. So uh, responsibility for both the building and the building owner and the tenants to make sure that um, the building and the building controls are, are effectively supporting the energy needs of the building. And finally, cost recovery. So um, often these leases are supported by um, an energy model that anticipates what uh, code buildings energy costs would be, what the costs associated with the net zero energy measures are, and making sure that um, costs are split equitably and savings are split equitably. And again, in most cases, the tenant is paying lower than they would uh, if they're paying the energy bill in a code-built building. Right. Um, and there is opportunity for the owner to um, benefit on that side in addition to, we talked about the higher lease up rates and the sale value premium. Let's say that I am an existing building and that I, let's, say, let's say that I am um, owning and operating an existing building and, and I want to get that building to zero. Um, what are, what would, uh, what would your recommendations be? And I think there might be four steps if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there are. So a net zero energy lease is kind of an extreme example of a green lease in the case of an existing building. And, and so step one is just gathering past energy data on the building use and sharing it with tenants. So everyone's got the same fact base to go off of. Um, the second is setting aggressive yet achievable energy goals with the tenant. So, so working through a process with them to identify where energy can be saved. Um, as you can imagine, getting existing buildings to net zero or close to it uh, requires a lot of buy-in and cooperation from the tenants. A lot of the energy use is driven by the tenants as opposed to common spaces. Mm-hmm. And so that, that dialogue and that buy-in with the tenants is really critical. Um, step three, then, once you've kind of worked with the tenants or, or, or started that process, is recommissioning the building so it's operating as efficiently as possible um, overall. And then step four, kind of once you've done those things, it then becomes time to implement energy efficiency and solar PV upgrades, uh, ideally using financing mechanisms that can be passed through the tenant. Um, we talk about solar power purchase agreements and uh, commercial property assessed clean energy or CPACE as financing mechanisms that can be really efficient in achieving that outcome. Um, and, and those four steps should allow both um, lower costs to the tenants as well as a more desirable building um, and, and allows the owner to kind of achieve much higher energy performance and ideally net zero while, while passing costs through to the tenants in the same way that those tenants were paying utility bills in the past. 
I want to point out because you and the RMI team should be proud of the fact that this is not just theoretical, but there are um, multiple case studies here, Boulder Commons being one of them. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what, what happened at the Boulder Commons and, and how that project developed? Yeah, Boulder Commons is a really personal one for us. Um, it So we... Um, we started in dialogue with the developer. Um, the developer wanted um, ha- has a history of, of building high performing, high quality developments. Wanted to build a net zero transit friendly development in Boulder. Um, we worked with them on the design of the building. You know, specifically focusing on the energy performance of the building. We then worked with them on on the lease structure and the lease language. Um, to help work through that, that not only can they build this and it's profitable, but also it can be leased and um, you know, finally, we we signed ourselves up as the anchor tenant in that building, and have been um, pretty happy occupants for I think close to three years now. That's great. And tell me a little bit about the solar investment in this building. And I think there might be certain elements of the physical structure itself which are solar integrated. Yeah, um, you know, the solar generation on site is a really key part of achieving net zero energy. Boulders blessed with 300 days of sunshine. So it becomes a really good place to do solar. Um, on this building, um, it abuts it abuts a rail line and so actually has south-facing wall that is, um, you know, has clear view lines for the sun. And so mm-hmm. what we have is um, solar on the roof, but also a solar facade on the south wall. And I think one of the really interesting things, because the solar was designed in from the beginning, the solar panels themselves act as the facade as opposed to being bolted on on top of the facade. And that, that became an energy savings or a cost savings in the Beautiful. development itself. And it worked nice. Well, I'd like to see it one day. I didn't warn either of you, but you know we're recording this uh, after the media company uh, Bloomberg uh, launched its, its Bloomberg Green. And we've got a letter, letter from the editor on climate change. This follows a, a very compelling message from Larry Fink at... CEO of BlackRock, followed by CEO of Fidelity, uh, talking about the role that active management can play in climate change. What do you both think about um, the role of sustainability in the marketplace? And and uh, a- am I imagining it, or does it seem like uh, there's some real traction now in a way that there hasn't been in quite a bit, uh, quite a few years? I would agree with that. I think it's um, climate change is becoming a pretty top issue. Everywhere, it seems like, right? Um, policy, international discussions. And I, I would agree with you, one of the most exciting things to see is the activation of the corporate sector and now the finance sector in a big way. We started working um, in 2014 with corporates who wanted to procure renewable energy offsite um, and founded something called the Business Renewable Center, which recently spun out to become the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance in partnership with a few other organizations. But at the mm. time, we set a goal of 60 gigawatts of procurement as something that felt very aspirational, but we just Mm -hmm. wanted to put something aggressive down there. Um, And what we've seen is above six gigawatts per year of procurement uh, of offsite renewable energy by that sector. Um, And it's, it's kind of blown our mind that not only was that not super aggressive, but it's going to be achieved and probably achieved ahead of target. And, And I think, I think the industry has just continued to build from there. And so um, as an organization that focuses on business-led change, it's one of the, the most exciting things we see. And I'd, I'd say this work, um, you know, we're really focused on making sure that when businesses 
and financial institutions want to take that step that it's in not only it's not only the right thing to do but in, in their best financial interest as well and we can demonstrate that and um I think that's just increasingly becoming the case. Yeah, it's very good stuff. Yeah, and I guess to chime in with a few additional thoughts, uh, I, I would agree with everything Jamie said. I think uh, you know you see policies and new solutions and technologies all coming into place, and just overall, it seems like the market is more focused and willing to to do these things. Uh, with that said, I think you know I, I mentioned earlier on that we're really focused on uh, some of these solutions that are very mass customized and industrialized. And the reason for that is uh, we still do not see the scale of retrofits that are needed to, to really deal with the challenges we have ahead of us over the next couple of decades. Um, so, so I think our focus is really to continue on that radical scale and, and see a lot more projects uh, come to fruition. Yes, you're right to point that out, Phil. It is encouraging to see some of this activity. Nevertheless, there is quite a bit of work to do. Let me say thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jamie. This conversation has been fun. Um, it's uh, It's been good to have a chance to talk about some of the hard data on the value of the work that you all have done and to see it applied and measured uh, in the case studies that you walked us through. So please keep it up. Thank you. And thanks for having us show and giving us a chance to speak to, um, well, to you and, and to your listeners. Okay, that's a wrap. For more episodes, go to the Gridium blog online or subscribe to Finely Tuned wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.